High above the beautiful Buckhead District of Atlanta, this is your personal transgender scientist, Dana Jeanette Bevan. In this episode, I'll cover transgender history through the 1980s. And to keep these episodes at manageable length, in a subsequent episode, I will cover from then until now. The idea of being transgender was developed in the early 20th century. Undoubtedly, there were people before that time whose gender behavior predisposition conflicted with the Western cultural gender system, but they were recognized as a group with similar characteristics. Once the idea that birth sex did not explain gender behavior was discovered, it was probably inevitable that the idea would spread, given the fundamental biological and cultural factors involved. The idea of being transgender was spawned by the new sciences of sexology and endocrinology, which were embedded in the larger development of modern medicine. The understanding that being transgender was a natural phenomena within the environment of Western culture was lacking, but physicians at the time felt they needed to do something to help those suffering rejection, react to depression, and shame. The sciences of sexology and endocrinology were developed in the late 1800s, but weren't applied to being transgender until Magnus Hirschfeld in Germany and Havelock Ellis in England described the phenomena in the 20th century. Hirschfeld called the phenomena transvestism, and Ellis called it sexoesthetic inversion. Given today's definition of transgender, their patients would undoubtedly be described as transgender. The idea of being transgender spread, but it did so along three paths, defined by three demographic groups of transgender people. Transgender people are a diverse lot, with little in common other than a mismatch between genetic gender behavior predisposition and birth sex. It's said that in a room with 25 transgender people, on any issue, you will get at least 26 opinions. Multiple paths were probably inevitable. Transgender people populate wide political, economic, and social spectra. This is why a unified transgender movement has never emerged. Advocacy paths for transgender people were different for the three demographics. The first demographic consists of those who want to change their bodies and live full-time in their congruent gender. This was the demographic that Hirschfeld first encountered in Germany. They were originally nearly all white Europeans and Americans, but later people of color joined them. Because they require medical treatment, this demographic is championed by the medical and mental health communities. The second demographic group consists of those who do not want to change their bodies, but want to express their congruent gender either full or part-time. They constitute about 80 to 90 percent of transgender people. Many have developed obligations with work, family, and community, which would be compromised by public exposure. Their path was through semi-secret, self-directed support groups starting in the 1960s. Some of these groups were strictly heterosexual, but some were open to all genders and sexual orientations. As with the first demographic, they were originally all white, but now include people of color. The third demographic includes those who have been rejected by their families for their transgender behavior and are forced to live in the street. They are predominantly people of color who engage in risky street economies. Rather than staying in hiding as the first two demographics predominantly do, this demographic group is forced into the open. 
This group reacted to cultural rejection and police harassment with direct action in the 1960s. Direct action included takeovers, picketing, and demonstrations. They started these actions in the 1960s with inspiration from the contemporaneous civil rights movement. After initial direct action, their path led to forming local groups to secure economic and health benefits from cities and the federal government. Recently, near my city, local groups protested police harassment and bias by a city attorney. They did so with picketing and direct confrontation with the mayor, and the mayor finally fired those city employees who were involved. Advocacy for the first demographic group began early in the 20th century, but the advocacy for other groups started in the 1960s. The advocacy activities of these three demographics are only loosely connected. In the 1960s, if there were connections, they were in San Francisco. A linchpin in these connections was a single transgender woman in San Francisco named Louise Lawrence. Louise Lawrence was a full-time transgender person, a community organizer, who also lectured to medical providers at the University of California, San Francisco. The providers were interested in understanding and treating transgender people. She was not only connected with transgender people locally, but worldwide through her correspondence and personal contact. Historically, the path of the first demographic, those who wanted to change their bodies, began with Hirschfeld, but the path eventually led to San Francisco and the United States in the 1960s. Hirschfeld had worked with Berlin police to stop transgender and homosexual harassment, and he used to walk the red-light districts of Berlin with a fellow German named Harry Benjamin to observe the scene there. Benjamin was interested in the new science of endocrinology, which had been triggered by the scientific discovery of sex hormones. At the outbreak of World War I, Benjamin became trapped in the United States because of the English blockade of Germany. He set up offices in New York City, but spent his summers in San Francisco, where he treated patients, some of whom were transgender. Later in San Francisco, Benjamin was introduced to Louise Lawrence by none other than Alfred Kinsey, who would become probably the most famous U.S. sexologist. Benjamin treated some transgender patients with hormone therapy, but also arranged for several to get transgender genital plastic surgery. Finding surgeons to do the operations was tricky because various European countries and U.S. states, including California, from time to time banned such surgeries. So he had to maintain worldwide connections and arrange for legal as well as illegal secret operations. His most famous patient was Christine Jorgensen, who had been a U.S. soldier in World War II and received transgender genital plastic surgery in Denmark. She eventually became a performer and celebrity, the Caitlyn Jenner of her day. Magazine reports about her offered hope to your young transgender scientist, who was five or six at the time. Benjamin wrote a definitive book entitled The Transsexual Phenomena and advocated for transgender people. In honor of Benjamin, the first professional association for treating transgender people was formed, the Harry Benjamin International Gender Dysphoria Association. It published standards of care for providers, and now they are up to revision seven. The organization is now called the World Professional Association for Transgender Health, or WPATH. 
I'm a member and was recently elected to serve on the board of directors of its newly formed subsidiary organization in the United States, USPATH, and I'm looking forward to the experience. Progress for the second demographic, that of non-transsexual transgender people, also had its beginnings in San Francisco. The focus here was on education and forming of self-help groups led not by mental health professionals, but by elected peers. After the breakup of her marriage, a person named Arnold Lohman, who held a PhD in pharmacy, moved to San Francisco. She presented full-time in the feminine gender category and became a lecturer at the University of California, San Francisco. She changed her name to Virginia Prince because she lived locally on Prince Street. Enter Louise Lawrence again. Lawrence helped Prince with her new letters and newsletters and publications, both through her contacts and with editing and production. Prince organized a chain of support groups around the United States called the Society for the Second Self, or TRI-S, which continues today. TRI-S was formed with the strict tenets that the participants be male, heterosexual, and non-transsexual. The discussions were kept to a secret, and wife participation was mandatory. Although Prince argued against transgender transition, it's believed that she took hormones for breast development. Although Trias had been the first support group for transgender people, it was just the start. Many other support groups developed, which accepted pansexual, transsexual, and trans men, as well as cross-dressing heterosexuals. Many of these groups started out as cross-dressing groups. As I was coming out, I attended meetings of several support groups, primarily the Crossroads group in Detroit, but also groups in DC and Los Angeles. I still keep in touch with the first transgender person I met there in Detroit, Melissa Farr. She became a mentor for me. While these support groups were formed as cross-dressing groups, they formally became transgender support groups as the term became repurposed from the original definition that John Olivan had coined in 1965. Olivan used it to describe transsexuals because he realized that they were motivated by gender concerns, not by sexual arousal, thus the substitution of gender for sex. Although the term transgender was in existence, Virginia Prince preferred the term femophile or transvestite. However, many people still attribute repurposing and popularization of the word transgender to her. Support groups also spawned transgender meetings and conventions, the largest of which were Southern Comfort, originally in Atlanta, and now Gender Odyssey in Seattle. The Be All Conference, as in the 1983 Army commercial jingle, Be All You Can Be, annually rotated between Detroit, Chicago, and Pittsburgh, and was hosted by the support groups in those cities. Conferences provided how-to workshops as well as lectures dealing with transgender issues. But in addition to education, they allowed transgender people to express their congruent gender category continuously for several days and to socialize with other transgender people. Many of the support groups and conferences were no, are no longer in existence, but Gender Odyssey still attracts several thousand people to Seattle, and they now have a second meeting in Los Angeles. The third demographic path involved activities of street transgender people who were trying to improve their lives. They were spurred on by the concurrent civil rights movement in the 1960s. 
These people do not have the resources to be able to practice their transgender behavior in secret, as do the first demographics. Many are forced out of their homes due to parental rejection of their transgender behavior and become homeless. To survive, they are forced into prostitution, drug pushing, and street crime. Police in many areas felt they had to crack down on these people during the 1960s in order to discourage Vietnam War soldiers from becoming patrons and in reaction to civil unrest. These transgender people engaged in direct action in the 1960s against police harassment and brutality. They didn't have the resources for legal actions or other alternatives. Transgender people participated in these actions because they were often subjected to public strip search and other degrading police practices. Although most people remember the Stonewall Riot as the beginning of the gay and lesbian political movement, transgender people were in the forefront of these and other actions. First in Los Angeles at Cooper's Donuts in 1959, then in Philadelphia at Dewey's Cafeteria in 1965, followed by Compton's Cafeteria in San Francisco in 1966, and finally Stonewall in New York City in 1969. It was after the actions in San Francisco that local transgender rights organizations first took hold. There, the so-called Tenderloin Social Justice Campaign was formed, which resulted in improvements in civil rights and restoration of financial support for local activities, which had been cut off. The first transgender support group in San Francisco, entitled Conversion Ergol, was formed. It was led by Wendy Kohler, and who had been a patient of Harry Benjamin. The efforts in San Francisco received private donations, including those from Reed Erickson, a wealthy transgender person who had also been a, a patient of Harry Benjamin and had supported Benjamin's writing of the Transsexual Phenomena book. By the early 1980s, transgender advocacy had developed medical organizations, transgender support groups, and multiracial advocacy groups in major cities. There would be ups and downs, but transgender people were here to stay. In a subsequent episode, I'll complete the story of transgender history, as well as touch on transgender history in other areas of the world. The next podcast, I'll examine neuroanatomical and neurophysiological correlates of being transgender.